to the Blackcast. Please, as always, make sure you like the Blackcast on Facebook. Follow at Blackcast on Twitter, and of course, it's B L A D T C A S T, and of course, Blackcast.com. I am indeed the titular Christian Blatt at Christian DMZ, joined momentarily by Agent Starling at Will Sterling underscore, and we have a very special guest joining us for this entire episode. Uh, we're joined by author Doug Brody, who is kind enough to join us over the years many times on the Dennis Miller show uh, he came on to talk about uh, some great books including Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone Shooting Stars of the Small Screen and uh, I don't even know how many other books we had you on to talk about Doug but uh, a lot yeah exactly but and it's just the tip of the iceberg of all the books that you've written or edited but uh, you're kind enough to join us here on the Blackcast to talk about something very important to not only myself not only to Will but a lot of the audience of the Blackcast. Star Trek celebrating its 50th anniversary. Welcome to the Blackcast, Doug. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. Now, let's uh, first of all, before we dive into Star Trek, let's talk about the titles. There's two books Gene Roddenberry's yes. Star Trek, the original cast adventures. And then the second one is called The Star Trek Universe Franchising the Final Frontier. Now, uh, take a moment to talk about how these are basically more reference material kind of books, books that are good for you to maybe try and get your local library to put on the shelves, right? I think you're absolutely right. The, uh, the idea came uh, a number of years ago for the same publisher, Roman and Littlefield. Um, we got the idea of doing um, Star Wars. I think it was coming to the 35th anniversary or something like that. And I was going to do a, a edit, a book of essays, including one or two by myself and um, also the introduction by me. And as we began uh, contacting people, scholars, everything, people who had worked on the films, uh, as we were in contact with them, we realized it was so rich, we couldn't do it all in one book. And a single book could come out and it would be, could be okay, but the richness of the material and the richness of the contributions sort of dictated we did two volumes. And then when we decided, hey, Star Trek's coming up for the 50th anniversary, let's do a similar set of books, uh, basically, immediately, you know, we, we found the same thing. Rather than just doing Star Trek, there was so such a wealth of material. Again, everything from academics writing about philosophy or religion in Star Trek to people who worked on the show contributing essays to the, about the writing of it or the special effects. On and on and on, we immediately said, uh, let's break it down in two, and it was even easier than with Star Wars uh, because we simply broke it down to one entire book on the original series, right. and that included the animated series, too, uh, the fourth season, as Gene Roddenberry used to call it, and uh, then the franchise ever since, and uh, uh, we've had wonderful reactions so far. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I, I have uh, just sort of periodically I, I decide to flip through one of the essays, and uh, you had a great introduction. Well, you had great introductions to both books, but uh, the one for the Gene Roddenberry Star Trek in particular, I was kind of re-reading a little bit before we talked to you. And before we dive into the books themselves, talk about your personal relationship with Star Trek. When was the first time you saw it, what you thought of? And I'm not asking you to rank anything, but when off the top of your head, some of the most enduring memories of Star Trek. It could be the original series, the movies, the spin-offs, whatever you think, like, oh, these these kind of stand out. So your overall experience with the show. 
Yeah, sure. And let me say as a preface, you were so absolutely right in something you said. If anybody's thinking of buying either of the two books or both of them on Amazon or from a bookstore, you should be very aware that what Christian said was exactly right. These are basically academic books. Uh, anybody who's simply interested in trivia, there's tons of trivia in the books, but that is not the purpose of the books. It's to really analyze it intellectually, and anybody who just wants to turn off their mind and have fun with Klingon trivia or something <laughs> like that, uh, these wouldn't be the books for you. But um, if you uh, basically are, are a serious Trek fan, and you love that exploration of the various meanings of it, uh, then it's, um, uh, yes, you're exactly right. This is great right. for libraries well, you know, and, and research we'll talk libraries. A, we'll talk about the also, specifics of it. Also I, I, for I think, individual libraries, sure. home libraries as well, right. for people who are serious about it. Uh, and we'll talk about the uh, premise behind this particular essay in, in a little bit, but uh, just to kind of give somebody an example, if you sound, if it sounds interesting to you to uh, have the structural parallels between Wrath of Khan and Paradise Lost, which is fascinating, mm -hmm. by the way, this is definitely the book for you. Uh, but uh, again, back to the earlier point, though, when did you first yeah. experience uh, Star Trek? When did you first see it, and uh, what were some of your thoughts at that point? Oh, gosh. When it first came on the air, almost exactly 50 years ago, so, my wife Sue and I were graduate students at um, Syracuse University, uh, living in married student housing. Uh, we didn't have a color TV set yet. Most people uh, didn't. That was just happening. But um, we gave a look at everything that showed up on TV. And as, as you know, uh, I, I was a huge uh, Twilight Zone fan. Yes. Um, shortly thereafter, I got to know Rod Serling in person. I hadn't yet uh, during the last years of his life, the early 70s. But, of course, this was 66, and I, I still mourn the passing of the Twilight Zone show. And as a kid in the 50s, I had loved every kitty-oriented science fiction show on the air. Oh, gosh. Um, you mean like the, the, Captain, the Captain videos and that sort of thing? You like Captain all the Captain video sure. in New York uh, which <laughs> with Al Hodge. And that was a live show. That was the amazing thing about that. And there were others. Cliff Robertson starred in the show. Later, Oscar winner Rod Brown of the Rocket Rangers on Sunday mornings, as mm -hmm. I remember. We loved them all. We just crazy about them and, um, and me especially and so you had a background that you liked science fiction at a younger age so even though you know you and your wife were in grad school you you heard about star trek were you excited about it or was it more of oh i, I guess i'll check out this new science fiction show in all honesty i was i guess i'll just check it out sure see yeah. if it's any good and um, I, it, it was, and I was very, very impressed. Um, the, the thing was, uh, I became very interested in it because they, they had the characters within the Enterprise, the starship. Uh, number one, they spoke to each other on adult issues. 
as much as you could in 1966 through 68, 69 on TV. It's nothing like what you can do today, but it certainly was a big jump from the um, the stuff that you saw back uh, in the uh, early 50s when I was first watching, when if there was, let's say, a beautiful girl was introduced into the story, uh, that um, the, the characters would recognize that she was pretty, but any real love interest was avoided, whereas in Star Trek, uh, people fell in love with each other, um, whether it was Captain Kirk becoming fascinated, especially in the second season, with various women, his famous kiss with Uhura, yes. uh, which was so wonderful, breaking uh, racial boundaries on TV, uh, all, all those kind of fabulous things. It was like, hey, this is like Rod Brown of the Rocket Rangers or Tom Corbett's Space Cadet for grown-ups. This is for me. This, this is for those of us who were kids in 1956. This was doing a version of it with all those wonderful trappings, monsters and space travel and suspense and some humor, but, um, but we weren't kids anymore. Sure. Uh, this, this was 1966. We were more grown-ups now. And so here was a show for everybody who loved uh, Space Cadet. Uh, now it was for us as young adults. Now, as you watched, especially, you know, in the first season, the early episodes, is there, it might not even be the first moment, but is there an early episode that you go, all right, this is different, I really like this, this is what I wanted? Uh, did it happen right away, or did it uh, take a few episodes to realize uh, that you had no, something unique? It took a few episodes, but um, if I had to pick out two uh, from the first season, one would be the city on the edge of forever. Of course, I yeah. think everybody has agreed that during all first seasons that was the truly great episode and it won a number of um, awards as well it should uh, brilliantly written and terrifically played and in my mind it was the first time while watching the show that it really hit as hard as Twilight Zone uh, because I had a feeling up until then that, you know, it was sort of halfway between Rocky Jones' Space Ranger and trying to do what Rod Serling had done in Twilight Zone, which was to really slam philosophy, psychology, religion, or theology, whatever, uh, politics into your face with a science fiction slash fantasy kind of uh, an aura and they were playing around with that in the first season they got more courageous second and third but that was the episode when they dealt with time travel as not just uh, a gimmick but as something really, really, uh, what happens if you step on a flower, as Ray Bradbury right, said? Yeah. Uh, the whole future of mankind has changed. And they hadn't played with that yet, and they did there. I was so impressed. And then the other would be the two-parter, the arena, a.k.a. the cage. And um, I'm, I'm not sure the, how the much The menagerie, you mean? Yeah, it was the original pilot. Right, right. Yeah, the menagerie used that footage, sure. Yeah, no, no. In that, which um, Captain Pike was a character. Right, exactly. And uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about City on the Edge sure. of Forever in a bit. Uh, before 
uh, we bring in my uh, my co-host, uh, Will Sterling. Let me talk a little bit about me. Uh, I grew up with uh, Star Trek was kind of always on. You know, I loved Star Wars more than anything. I had all the toys. But Star Wars at the time, you know, I, I was born 1976. So for me, Star Wars was something that you, every couple of years, got to go out with your family and see in the theater. If you were lucky, you got to see it twice, and then you had to wait for another movie in, a, in three more years. But Star Trek was always on. My mom loved Star Trek, and it premiered when she was in high school, and she's told me how... You know, she she was in high school and it was on Friday nights, at least initially, and it was you know that that was basically date night. That was a night to go out with your friends. However, she uh, planned around. Well, I'm going to be home to watch Star Trek. So you know, if I if I'm if I've got a date, if I've got plans with friends, we're going to be watching Star Trek, and that kind of stayed throughout her whole life. And so when I was a kid, we would see it a lot. And I've talked about this before on the Blackcast, but. I've long suspected that the main reason we got a VCR for Christmas in 1984 was so mm-hmm. that my mom could record Star Trek reruns because they were on midnight at Channel 11 in New York, WPIX. Ah. And I'm pretty sure she specifically was trying to see Trouble with Tribbles again because she loved it, but I don't think she'd ever seen it more than once. And you you know, the way that reruns work, you could record something for six months and still not get the episode you want. So I would uh, get to see it a lot in the mornings. And, uh, you know, I, I, I loved just the characters and something about Spock was appealing to me. But what I really remember, and we'll talk about the movies later, I remember full well going to see Rathacon in the theater. And this was the summer of 1982. We were at the Jersey Shore. We went to the movies. And, you know, I was a whole year away from another Star Wars movie. So I'm like, all right, yeah, I'll go see a Star Trek movie, I suppose. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I'm probably putting a little bit of modern perspective on it. But I do know that there was sort of this eye-opening moment that... You know, evil isn't necessarily defined as clearly as it is in Star Wars, where the guy in the yeah. black helmet is the evil guy. The fact was, oh, this is just a man, but he's so driven by hate and revenge that all of these things spiral basically from that. And that's one of the things that, to me, is sort of is a fundamental difference between Star Trek and Star Wars. You know, Star Trek is definitely a little bit more, uh, you know, esoteric, I don't mean in a negative sense, and it's much more thoughtful. There's, like, the exploration of the human well, condition, and, uh, you know, it, it's it, it shows you, you know, look, mankind is capable of so much good, but the inverse of that is take a look at how bad it can get, you know? Absolutely, and uh, the issue, the idea is that uh, the the very first Star Wars film, uh, Episode Four, considered now, uh, is that it was precisely as you said. Uh, the term is Manichaean, uh, uh, simply meaning good, pure good versus pure evil. You know, Jesus versus the devil, and you had um, in that film Luke versus Darth Vader white versus black there were no shades of gray now with with the very second film or episode five they began lucas and his team began to try and diminish that manichaean uh quality of it you know luke i am your father and all that uh that this guy and by the time you have the uh prequel films uh darth vader becomes this incredibly rounded character like Khan uh, in the um, uh, Star Trek episode that he's originally in and then later right, in the, Space the Seed, sure. movie. Yeah. Uh, but, but you're so right uh, that uh, whatever Star Wars had 
over Star Trek, let's say, uh, beginning in, in the beginning with its budget. Um, the, the, the simple thing is that Star Trek always had certain things over uh, Star Wars. Uh, you know, it's like the old Gilligan's Island thing, Ginger and Marianne, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, it's absolutely. Like, um, yeah, you look at it this way, and then you look at it that way, and uh, there, 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 there's so much uh, that that's wonderful. And, you know, speaking of that, um, uh, j- just looking again at Yahura, uh, and especially in light of what's been going on politically in the country uh, right now, uh, the, the idea of Yahura was so wonderful in that on the one hand she was conventionally beautiful right, in the course. original series and in the more recent movies but on the other hand you know that that was the case uh, with the beautiful girls in rocky jones space ranger or something or the old movies we used to watch but the point is yahura was brilliant she was capable she was strong she was uh, so sophisticated in her outlook, and there was this wonderful balance, you know. The um, uh, and comparing that, as I said, to what's going on in the country now, it's you know there is this attack on just looking at women, the objectification of women, and uh, to a degree, I completely agree with feminists that that that's a horrible thing when a woman is reduced to. Uh, uh, a sex object or a beauty object, but on the other hand, I don't think there's anything wrong with um, heterosexual males enjoying the beauty of women just so long as they also every bit as much appreciate the intelligence of women, the strength, the capability of women. And I think Yahuru, uh, yeah, again, the attacks on a presidential candidate are not because he loves the beauty of women, but because that's all he ever talks about. And um, it's that or nothing. And going to Yahuru, sure. for so many of us becoming young men in the late 1960s, it really kind of educated us that um, we can sit there and say and and of course it was wonderful for the race issue and that like all of America for the first time on TV was asked to look at this fascinating beautiful woman uh, as you know as a sex symbol partly at least uh, and she was African American and nobody dared to do that before and now well isn't that wonderful in terms of race but also that she was not reduced to a sex object was she and you know um, the the actress Michelle Nichols a number of times was interviewed by feminists who sort of said to her did you ever feel like you were being reduced to a sex object because you wore kind of short skirts on the show did she give it to them (laughs) and I was so proud of her in in the sense because I just agree with her so much there's nothing wrong with a woman being sexy, and there's nothing wrong with men appreciating that about a woman, as long as that's not all right. that she is. And I would as say long that as uh, the character. 
I would say that Captain James Tiberius Kirk uh, certainly is someone who historically appreciated everything that women had to offer, but uh, obviously exactly, exactly. obviously, a beautiful one would catch his eye. Now, we're joined by uh, one of my Black Cast co-hosts, Will Sterling, on Twitter, Will Sterling underscore. And uh, Will is, uh, he's, he's part of that millennial generation, Doug. He is uh, mm-hmm. not yet 30, and uh, he has a little bit of familiarity with Star Trek, but I, uh, he's one of actually two millennials I know that are doing basically the same thing right now. So, Will, talk a little bit about what you're doing with Star Trek right now and kind of what brought you to that decision and give us your thoughts about what you're seeing. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because I I was always a Star Wars kid growing up. My brother was a big fan of Star Trek and he watched The Next Generation. Um, and I don't know, attention span wise, maybe just I grew up with Ninja Turtles and Power Rangers and really choppy, high action, you sure. know what I mean? Stuff. Yeah. So anytime I'd walk into his room and he was watching Star Trek, it was the most boring thing in the world to me because it was always two people in a hallway talking. Or possibly everyone in a boardroom yes. kind of mapping out yeah. the plan that will be later in the episode. Every once sure. in a while I was yeah. like, oh, Goldberg. <laughs> well, yeah, there's also the, <laughs> hey, sister act. Hey. Yeah. Um, but Star Wars was, you know, bright lights and lightsabers yeah. and hey. lasers and space mm. battles and stuff. So that was kind of more... Uh, to my liking, but as I grew up, I had so many fa- uh, friends who were big Star Trek fans, and I always t- knew I was going to get into it at some point, or at least give it a shot. And I'd seen some of the movies over the years, some of the Next Generation movies, and uh, even the, some of the original ones, like the fourth one was the first one I ever saw with the whales. Right, that's what a lot of people yes. are like, oh yeah, there's one with whales. Yeah, sure. Star Trek with, for the quest with, for peace. <laughs> Star Trek for yes. the voyage home. Right. Yes, you get your um, fours confused. Bridget yes. Jones 2. Well, yes. it's so interesting what you're saying in that um, to pick up kind of where I left off uh, about my own autobiography, um, <laughs> the, the original show was on network NBC when Sue and I were just married and living in marriage student housing at SU and then very shortly uh, after it was canceled, was in 69, and I didn't really miss it a lot. Um, our lives were changing, and we bought a house, and I began teaching and stayed right there, uh, as Sue did too, uh, and I was teaching at the community college there and at SU as well. Uh, but very shortly thereafter, Star Trek came on TV in reruns. Now, that was nothing out of the ordinary. Basically, the rule of thumb for a show going into reruns after network was you had to have had three seasons. If you didn't have three seasons, the show usually disappeared because there weren't enough episodes. Right. You, know, you, you would be repeating them too soon. But about 72 or 73, one of the Syracuse channels uh, picked it up where we were living. Uh, now we had our own home and we had our own first child. And uh, I didn't think an awful lot about it. I, you know, I'd watch it in the afternoon sometimes. Uh, this is about 72. First of all, number one, what became fascinating to me was my students, whether they were at SU or the community college, my students would very, I I learned that they were making it a point to go to the student center to watch Star Trek in the afternoon, or uh, heading home. uh, To watch it to dormitories, to homes, whatever. purposefully, not just flipping it on when they got there. And I began to ask him, you know, what do you find so fascinating about it? And I suddenly began to, or more, more correctly, gradually began to realize, I don't think I even know, knew the, the term cult series, C-U-L-T. Sure, but, yeah. Uh, that came a little later, but that's what it was. Um, it, it was absolutely a cult series that had a following. 
as say, I love Lucy is always bad. <laughs> right. Or Twilight Zone, anyone sure. said. And um, I suddenly realized that Shrek was becoming that for them and, and their various, you know, interests in it, what, whatever a student's field of study might be. Um, again, I could have some uh, history students, and they were fascinated in the way it dealt with history in episodes yeah. like, as I said before, the classic uh, City, City on the Edge of Forever. And so many other things. And then, as our first son, Shane, uh, you know, became three, four, five, he and all his friends went nuts for it. And something happened that has never happened in the history of TV before. And I don't think ever happened again was that they began putting out products. They began putting out toys, whether it was the guns, the uniforms, uh, all these different things for a show that had been canceled five years before. I mean, there had always been marketing for shows. I remember when I was a kid in 1954, Davy Crockett, the moment it went on the air, um, Disney and other people scrambled to put as many Davy Crockett items on the market as possible, right. but um, and then it was there, and it was huge, and it was crazy, and then it was over. And five years later, when Disney ran the Crockett's, nobody put out merchandising again. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. And one of the one of the testaments to Star Trek is kind of the enduring nature to it. And uh, to sort of yes. throw it back to Will, what he's doing now, and also my friend Roxy is doing exactly the same thing right now, is. On Netflix, the whole series is there. Actually, all the series are there. Mm. So, uh, Will, talk yeah. about what made you decide to watch the original show uh, in in its original production order, yeah, and why and people told you that was important. I'm which, such a weirdo. No, but Star Trek things. fans know it's important to watch yes. it in the production order, not the air date order. Right. So, go ahead, Will. So, starting, yeah, I mean, you know, with the original pilot and some stuff, I was like, oh, and I really like old stuff. You know, I like the Twilight Zone, and I obviously love watch a lot of old movies. But one thing I felt like as a kid, it was just I wasn't ready for it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm sure some kids uh, i don't know how their brains work but i w was too distracted that it, i didn't have the patience for it but now i i'm able to think thematically and think about the social and the scientific things that they're bringing up and um a lot of the issues that i mean obviously are issues of the 60s but are still kind of relevant today uh which is where I, that ends up being a lot of my favorite episodes is the ones that deal with uh those those big high concept things which right. is i kind of like the twilight zone so um watching it in that order uh, is really interesting, and it's been it's been a lot of fun because when at once it felt like two people just standing in a hallway talking, now you're interested in their conversation, and um, you understand that they're talking about big, uh, high concept issues. That Star Wars is still always going to be entertaining, but they never have the time to really get into the nitty gritty of the science fiction part of it. Right, absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's always going to be like it's just the Millennium Falcon because, and Star Trek is like here's how warp drive works, and you're like oh. Okay, so that I, that's really fascinating. I think as an adult, I'm able to appreciate it more, and I'm I'm uh, I'm ready for it, so to speak. Yeah, and you know, one of the things uh, that I'm thinking of both Will and Doug is, you know, I at some point I, I love this idea of watching the original series all over again in order. And I'd love to do it with my son Felix. Now he's only 15 months now, so this is not uh, the time cool. to do it. <laughs> yeah. And a, a friend of the Black Cast, our friend Gene Beretta, he did it with his son Ben. I think Ben was around 10 when he did it, which seems like an okay time to do it. Uh, you know, as long as they, there's somebody who can sit still for that long. Uh, I'm 
not sure what age to do it with. It's obviously not well, yet, but if anybody has ideas, they can tweet us at BlackCast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. But, uh, Doug, uh, you said your son found oh, it. How, how old was he when my, he... My first son, yeah. it was like four to five. Oh, wow. Okay, and yeah, that's... It, you know, I was watching it. Really it. I was went on heavy. Um, and basically what people did then was they picked up uh, local stations uh, all across the country would pick up to fill an hour or half an hour with other shows. Uh, in the afternoon, they'd pick up a recently done show, um, try it out, let it run for a half a year or a year, and then usually it, it got overexposed, and then they drop it and bring in uh, a more recently canceled sure, network yeah. show and do that. Nobody even noticed. But what happened all over the country was when, and that's all they were trying to do at the beginning, but when they canceled Star Trek to put on another rerun series, people called in like a angry letters, protests, and very often they put it back on. Yeah, I don't want to see Dragnet. I want to see Star Trek. Take Dragnet off, you know. That had never (laughs) happened before. (laughs) And there was this loyalty to the show, as there was to Zone. Oh, of course, uh, yeah. That was quite unlike uh, anything that had ever... I mean, Zone did precede it with that kind of loyalty. But what uh, the difference against Zone was always a more adult-oriented show. Sure. When it originally ran, it was on uh, Friday nights at 9.30 or so, 10 o'clock on Friday nights. Um, and usually Zone was rerun in the evenings, you know, like at 11.30 or something, with Star Trek very often in the afternoons. That makes sense. But what I started to say was, my son Shane, who is still into Trek, and I want to add Star Wars as well, he learned to love science fiction and fantasy uh, as much as I do, but, and my other sons too, uh, and now my grandson. But the, what I'm getting at is uh, Star Trek never left them um, in the sense that my generation in 1954, we watched Davy Crockett, we ran around in coonskin caps for a year, and a year uh, there was a craze, and a year after it was over. And it was completely over. And it was like a nostalgia thing, you know, when Disney ran it. Oh, for the good old... That was not the case with Trek. It never ended. And uh, my son is, you know, a a very brilliant young man now. He's um, a computer expert, but he loves Trek as much as ever for different reasons. And this is what Will was kind of saying a minute ago, um, that Star Trek, when he first saw it as a four-year-old, it was running around shooting zappers at his friends. You know what I mean. And then as he got older, it was looking at it the way you could look at Twilight Zone, that there were themes there, at least in the best episodes, uh, that there was more to it than met the eye. And I thought that was, you know, absolutely fascinating. And with all the new TV shows, uh, uh, you know, there's a new one, Discovery, a prequel show uh, starting up, and and all the uh, four great series that they put on about it. Um, You can interpret and reinterpret it, and it became not just a 
praised, but an ongoing part of the culture, as certainly Star Wars is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you referenced uh, your son, and it's worth noting that uh, he, uh, alongside you, he co-edited both of these books, uh, Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek, the original cast adventures, and the Star Trek universe franchising the final frontier, uh, which is interesting. And, you know, look, we, we can talk about uh, all sorts of things in terms of the show, but let's take at least a minute to go to something that you write about in the introduction, and there's also an essay about it, sort of the, the genesis, or if I wanted to make a pun, the genesis planet of Star Trek, which is indeed the idea that this was going to be a wagon train to the stars, which I think Absolutely. is an interesting terminology, because if you think about it from the modern day looking back, wagon train to the stars almost sounds more like a perfect description of Battlestar Galactica. But at that time, yes. that was yes. what Gene Roddenberry wanted to do. So kind of talk about how that got on TV, why Wagon Train to the Stars was something that networks eventually bought, but you know there were obviously a lot of obstacles that needed to be overcome. First, very, very quickly, um, that's my third son, Shay, who edits the books with me. He's brilliant at doing that. I have three sons with the same name, Shane, Sean, and Shay. So wow. <laughs> even I get mixed up. But um, I just wanted to, to clarify that. But let's go to Wagon Train to the Stars. That was the pitch. And you are so on the money when you say that Galactica is really wagon train to the stars. Um, that That's not really what Star Trek was. Uh, it was the selling point. It was the way of selling it. It was the way of making NBC brass buy it. Uh, wagon train had been what it came on the air, I think, 57. And it had just gone off the air about a year and a half to two years before, first on NBC, then ABC, and it was doing well in reruns in the afternoon at that time, and um, people still continued to watch and enjoy it, and the whole thing was, the, uh, in, the, in 1965, the Western, which had come on TV in 1955, was dying. Uh, they were yeah. all beginning to go off. I think Gunsmoke and uh, Bonanza would be the last two to go off in the early 70s. But one by one, Wyatt Earp, uh, Cheyenne, all of them uh, had been canceled after long, successful runs. And the era of the Western on TV was ending for a lot of different reasons. Uh, the, um, instead, they had to find something new. And what we played, well, there were detective shows. In fact, there had been detective shows in the 50s and early 60s. Now the detective show gave way to the spy show, Mission Impossible. Um, Man from I Uncle? Spy. Man from Uncle, yeah. exactly. There were less and less detectives on the air than there were spies. Uh, the Prisoner, my all-time favorite show of that type, uh, and you know, a great cult show. If nobody's ever heard of, if anybody out there has not heard of it, yeah, there's uh, very few of episodes of The, the prisoner, prisoner, right? Was it even a full season? I mean, it's such a weird no, stylistic show. Yeah, it's such a weird stylistic show that I, I just visually. But, but, you, but yeah. back to what you were saying. Yeah, of course. So the basic thing when you understand network mentality especially network mentality in 1965, what they wanted was, we want the same thing that succeeded before, only different, <laughs> with a new edge, a new twist. Now, how the heck do you do that? And Roddenberry, in his genius, said to them, 
wagon train. Everybody done it to the stars. <laughs> now this was at a time when we were getting ready for the moonshot. It was coming up in 1969, and everybody knew that America was hard at work preparing for that. Our scientists and NASA and so on. So it was like, wait a minute, I think you've got something there. Let us take, uh, we know wagon train, people love that. And we know they're getting more and more interested in outer space because we're quickly moving there. And it was like, you know, the idea of, you know, make them an offer they can't refuse. Right. Uh, old and yet new. And that's what sold it. But you're so right when you say, Star Trek was never really wagon train to the stars. That was Galactica, which which is exactly what it was. Yeah, and you know the interesting thing, of course, is uh, even now, fifty plus years later, uh, studio executives and network executives are still looking for the same but different, and they're still buying a lot of things that are the same and different. And you know, Absolutely. obviously, we and, still get uh, Star one Trek. Thing of I, course, I do want to add quickly. Yeah. is that what Star Trek? was it wasn't wagon train to the stars but it was cowboys in space yeah and it was that from the beginning and then when george lucas in 75 pitches star wars to um the, the executives of 20th century fox his exact words were cowboys in space <laughs> and the idea right. of the space cowboy whether it's harrison ford as han solo or whether it's captain kirk who's sort of like a young cavalry commander except uh, yeah what do they say at the beginning of episode uh one of star trek and every single episode the final the frontier. final frontier yeah uh yeah, in terms so of important. you know obviously rodney had uh sorry uh, roddenberry had the yeah. vision uh how involved was he in the week-to-week production uh you know i mean rod serling you felt like basically wrote every episode of the twilight zone for the most part yeah. but rod Roddenberry, you don't get the sense that he was as involved, although I'm sure his voice is very clearly in the final shooting drafts of all the episodes, right? Yes. Uh, during the first three out of the five seasons of Twilight Zone, Serling wrote about a half to two-thirds of the episodes per year with brilliant people like Earl Hamner Jr. and Richard Matheson and many, many others uh, writing along with him. Um, and he he did lose some interest in the, the, sec- the final two seasons because of CBS was making so many compromises. Right. But to go to Roddenberry, he never exerted that kind of control. Uh, hands-on control over the show, the Star Trek show. Uh, he wrote uh, a minimum number of episodes, and this is all covered in the books, of course, especially the book that covers the original series. Uh, they, but uh, he wrote some episodes, he co-wrote others, he gave ideas to other people, like Jim Coons, uh, to, to, to come up with stories, which they did, and they were really the, the hands-on writers. At, so in that sense, uh, some of the, the essays in the book, uh, the books that my son Shay and I did do, some of them deal with who was the real auteur yeah. of, uh, <laughs> of 
Star Trek. And uh, it's real easy with Zone because it is so clearly Sterling. Yeah. But um, the, you can argue about it. Let's take a look at who wrote the most episodes. And does that, maybe that person is the primary artist behind Trek. And others say, no, 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 no. It was Roddenberry well, um, always including his And his widow. It, you know, the interesting thing uh, is that, of course, you know, probably the standalone most, you know, best known name for someone who wrote an episode of Star Trek obviously ahead of Star Trek actually being a show, is the fact that Harlan Ellison wrote City on the Edge of Forever. Now, uh, talk a little bit about how he was very put off with the finished episode, and I guess it didn't resemble his script uh, quite as much as he wanted it to, but at the same time, he's still responsible for the concepts that made for what a lot of people consider to be the best episode of the original series. Yes, Excuse me, Christian. Um, you're so right. And uh, the idea is that was the show itself. And I, I think that's why Roddenberry didn't stick with as much total control as he might have exerted. Very simply, um, there is the, let's say, the artistic auteur of a movie, uh, of a TV show. I tend to think in movies it's usually the director. Um, in TV shows, I think it's the producer slash head writer and creator of the show. Uh, but, you know, there's always the artistic end. And then in movies or TV, there is the degree to which it's a commercial enterprise. And the degree to which you've, you know, whether it's NBC with Star Trek or 20th Century Fox with the original Star Wars, they want to make money. Not that the um, Roddenberry or Lucas or Serling didn't want to make money. Of course they did. Right, of course. Uh, but they also want a certain quality to it. And as, as you said, with that individual episode, the writer, Harlan Ellison. And just to give you an example of, of, uh, on a larger scale, um, Star Trek, you know, didn't have the greatest ratings in the world its first season. It never had that great ratings, nor did Twilight some. But um, uh, NBC sort of said, you can bring it back for a second season, but you've got to beef up the romances between Kirk and these beautiful star maidens in season two. And if you look at season two, there's so much more of that than there was in season one. It's okay, because season two was really the greatest season. But the real problem with season three is that almost became the focus. And I think it hurt the show. Yeah. And uh, with Harlan Ellison and why he wasn't as happy with, uh, and again, I don't mean to speak for Harlan Ellison, a great science fiction writer. Who no, but it's fairly well known that he himself. wasn't happy, and he's but, certainly but spoken about, about it. Yeah. What went on, and very, very, very simply, that beefing up of the romance with the Joan Collins character, that was there in his original script, but it was played down, and the producers of the show. Let's let's go more with that uh, you know let's get the emotional heart involved more than the head uh, the intellectual quality and you've got to remember that's why NBC chose not to pick up the original pilot the original pilot was about Captain Pike played by Jeffrey Hunter 
And they, uh, again, what, what Roddenberry absolutely wanted to do, he's made this very clear to us, is that he wanted to do Twilight Zone, an intellectual show like that, only with a continuing cast. And he shot the episode with uh, Captain Pike. And um, NBC said, well, it's good, and we really have further interest. But we need you to go out and do another pilot in, in which um, there's more emotional involvement. Right. We need romance. We need more action. We need more chases. We need more humor. And he did, and they immediately bought it. And he originally wanted to do it with Jeff Hunter as Pike. And Hunter had moved on. You know, his option had expired, and he moved on, sadly for him, <laughs> to a couple of B-movies and a failed TV show. And then Obscurity. Yeah, uh, just imagine how many just imagine how many conventions uh, Jeffrey Hunter could be going to at this point, fifty uh, years later. Well, Not that he can't go to any. Yeah, I'd say I know. Sixty-eight. Uh, uh, but that but wouldn't have happened. You know, he, died, <laughs> he know, would have lived. Uh, an unsuccessful person. Um, and, now, um, now, Doug, we we're uh, time is getting a little bit limited here. So what I want to okay, do is okay. kind of talk about some of the uh, some of the personal favorite episodes uh, of the show, and you know, you can just have you know a, a minute or two reaction to these episodes. Uh, we've talked a lot about City on the Edge of Forever, which is probably my favorite. Uh, because I saw these shows when I was so young originally, the ones that stand out to me the most are This Side of Paradise, which is a little bit sure. sillier and a little bit more fun, but especially The Trouble with Tribbles. Now, of course, my mom had really hyped it up because she liked it so much, but the comedy in that episode is so funny to just look at on the page. You just watch those scenes. It doesn't matter if it's a science fiction story or whatever. It's so funny and it's so well done and it's the balance of that that you know Star Trek doesn't do as often but when they do it it works so well uh, give us your thoughts about Trouble with Tribbles if you if you think that they actually were able to accomplish uh, a good balance uh, uh, without it getting well, too silly time, I can simply say yes I agree with everything <laughs> you just said let me just uh, I have sure, nothing of further to say about it except to add one little bit and that was a very favorite thing for TV at that time and I think later, was that you did what was called, uh, I, I don't know how many people uh, listening to this know the term change of pace episode. And um, let's say on the original wagon train, which is usually about, you know, pioneers fighting it out with Indians or bad guys. But every six or seven episodes, they would do a comedic episode. They had Mickey Rooney come on once as a tenderfoot, and it was a very lighthearted episode. And it was so that you didn't get into a rut, so that you weren't doing the same thing every single week. And um, that, that was really important uh, at that time on TV. In fact, if, if anybody out there remembers the old Maverick show with James Garner, sure. that originally started out to be a dramatic Western, and they did a, a change of pace show where they made fun of the Gunsmoke show and parodied it in an episode called Gun Shy. They had their highest ratings ever, and they actually turned the entire show into a comedy western from then, then on because it went over so well. But uh, basically, everything you say is true. Uh, trouble with Tribbles, uh, it was so unexpected and it was so delightful that they, they didn't turn it into a comedy show, thank goodness, but they began to do, as you said, the Paradise and certain other episodes, yeah. more lighthearted episodes. And I think if they had made it into a comedy show, well, they, let's not forget, there were comedy shows on Twilight. 
Yeah, Bigger no, that's true. Number of comedy yeah, episodes. there's some very funny um, ones. Yeah, we're about to use car salesmen. I think Jack Carson played them. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there were a, there were a number of them. Yeah. And um, I don't think they ever worked as well as the Star Trek ones did. Uh, but but with Star Trek, people if they turn to a comedy show, people would have stopped watching. Yeah, uh, no, know, no, they're, they're and I, I think it, I think you're able to have the occasional comedy episode because of but the ongoing cast and everything. Yeah, uh, now uh, that was such a wonderful uh, thing as, to have. Sure, as we were talking about, Will is uh, watching uh, Star Trek uh, in order, and he's most of the way through the first season. But mm -hmm. uh, Will, if you had to pick one episode that you've seen now as as an adult, uh, is there one that so far stands out that you think was maybe one of your favorites, or if not your favorite? Yeah, uh, we talked about the Corbomite. Corbin? The cor Carbomite Cor Carbomite. Maneuver. I yeah. always want to say Carbonite. Well, because Carbonite from Star yes. Wars, yes. That one I really liked, but the one that I saw probably most recently was A Taste of Armageddon, which, oh, was, sure. which was cool, which I really liked because um, that was one of those high concept things where I was like, oh, this is, I can't imagine being a child and, and being entertained, maybe like being entertained by that episode because it's Star Trek, but understanding what it's really about, which is so interesting to me and still kind of relevant where it's two like races at war with each other, except there's no actual physical damage. They just basically play battleship. Yeah. And then they order people to disintegration chambers and the people comply. Sure. And they commit, you know, mass genocide on each other and weird it and it was to me, I was like, that is so Difficult to to grasp if you're young, you know what I mean. To a certain degree, now yeah. now at a, as a 28 year old, I'm like, Fuck. yeah, I, I <laughs> really because I saw that as a but kid so and cool. I, I I I didn't get any of that. Yeah. I was just like, mm, I can't wait till Tribbles is on again. Right. You know? And the notion that basically you're just one step away from peace. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> no, it's great. If you yeah. just stopped, things would be okay. Yeah. So. Hey guys, yeah. Uh, let me ask a question. Yeah. Can I do a little plug here, an advanced plug for my own science fiction? Please Red do. Yeah. Yeah. Up shortly. Happy That'd to have you great. plug it. Sure. Uh, because I, I know you know, and a lot of people have read my books, that I write a lot about uh, pop culture and particularly science fiction, Twilight Zone, Star Wars, Disney, Star Trek. But I am a science fiction, you know, fantasy writer myself. And I have a new franchise coming up. Uh, it is called Planet Jesus Trilogy. And uh, anybody who wants to get an advanced peek at it, the first book will be out March 1st. We're hoping to eventually sell it to TV and movies. We have to wait and see. But all you do is go to www.planetjesus. T-R-I-L-O-G-Y dot com www dot Planet Jesus Trilogy uh, there's all kinds of information about it and what it does the, um, the, the, the sort of the hype line for it is where the New Testament meets Close Encounters of the Third Kind and what we're doing is taking ancient alien uh, ancient al alien theory there's a wonderful TV show called Ancient Aliens and applying it to the life of Jesus. Wow. And um, it's never been done before. Uh, the first book will be out from Sun Sunbury Press in Pennsylvania on uh, March 1st and um, it's being processed right now. There'll be two more books in the series and um, I think it's like unlike anything else that's ever been done. And I, I hope people 
enjoy my own sci-fi franchise as much as they apparently do my writing about other franchises. Right. No, no, no. And uh, I'm glad you uh, had the opportunity to tell us about that because I, I was not aware that that was coming. So thank you. Obviously, we'll uh, look for that. You know, in our, our final uh, few minutes here, uh, I did want to mention another individual episode that a, a great friend of the Black cast, uh, he's our friend Mark Hunt, and uh, his episode that he really highlighted, like he, he likes a mock time and uh, Mirror Mirror. Those are both great. But uh, I was interested that he chose Journey to Babel, and I was thinking about that episode. The the story itself is is perfectly well done, but actually getting to meet Spock's parents in that episode and the idea that uh, Kirk didn't know them, and you know, I mean, obviously they're not close friends like they are, you know, six movies later. But at the same time, just this idea of like, oh yeah, he doesn't know anything about the parents of this guy and it's just great because like a mock time journey to Babel kind of gives us this really this just a peek into how rich a character Spock is wouldn't you agree Doug uh, oh yeah of course but um, let's not forget with the reboot films uh, Star Trek yeah uh, 2009 we get to meet um, Kirk's parents yeah. That was the great thing about it. When you first went on the air uh, in 1966, what you had to do was to sell, hard sell the essence of the show. And it was Kirk and it was Spock. And by the way, how many people know that the original choice for Spock was Martin Landau? Um, I only I only know that because uh, I, I seem to find myself with so much uh, you know so much uh, trivia in my head yeah. but it, it's fascinating because you know he doesn't seem like a, a it's I don't even think he's a bad choice it's just a very different choice I don't know if this means that Leonard Nimoy would have been on Mission Impossible you know I don't know how that works well, out well, that's the funny thing that Landau had a choice between doing Spock and Mission Impossible and he sort of said well I don't know if I want to be a man from Mars, you know, but on, <laughs> on, on Mission Impossible, I play a sort of a, a different character each week as a spy with many faces, and he did it for about three or four years, and he got tired of that and dropped out, and they replaced him with Leonard Nimoy, <laughs> uh, who came in and played a very, I think, Paris, his character yeah. was called, and he played a very similar character, basically the same character, with a different name to Marty Landau, and when Landau didn't get the exact uh, roles in movies and TV he wanted, he came back with a, with a science fiction show called Space 1999. Right. Now, I uh, remember that so show from when I was a kid. I'm going I, back and forth. Yeah, no, no. I, I don't even... I, Trek, I don't even... Can, yeah, I don't even think that uh, Space 1999 was a good show, but I do remember watching reruns of it when even. I was a kid. Uh, you know, uh, Doug, we've barely even touched the tip of the iceberg with relations to just the original Star Trek, and obviously... You know, the other book, the uh, the franchising, The Final Frontier, the Star Trek universe, that dives into uh, more about the, the spin-offs, the reboot, which we didn't have the term reboot when Next Generation started, but that's exactly what it was. Uh, so we're going to have to talk again about that and more about Star Trek. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can get some maybe some specific questions from our audience uh, at BlackCast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. Yeah, we can always talk about my new Disney book. Well, I was going to mention those. Yeah, you have uh, It's the Disney version popular cinema and literary classics and debating Disney uh, oh boy pitiological perspectives on commercial cinema pedagogical yeah I knew I was yeah. wrong it's um, yeah. basically intellectual academic views yeah. of what was meant to be 
pure entertainment. Yeah, which I, I have a lot. You know, look, I, I I'm I'm basically going to speak for Will, but I know that he likes Disney in the same way I do because in general it makes you feel good after you watch it. Yeah, it's fun. Right, and I you know it, to, to the way that people overanalyze Disney and Disneyland and just everything, it, it does drive me crazy because to me Disney equals fun. And uh, you know, look, when I was a kid, I loved the Song of the South, which we could do a whole hour on that movie. <laughs> but I thought it, I just you know I don't think that makes me racist because I like the Song of the South. Me I just too. like now you know in an earlier book I wrote called From Walt to Woodstock, or uh, I, I do defend Song of the South. I think it's an anti-racist film. Yeah, no, no. And, I, I, um, many other academics have attacked me for that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I actually have a, a, a copy of it because, you know, you can sort of get a hold of these things too. if you look around. Uh, you know, They still sell it in Japan and things like that. But, uh, yeah, so I, I definitely want to talk to you about Disney. I want to talk more Star Trek. But uh, we're out of time with you for right now. So uh, I'll mention again the Star Trek universe, franchising the final frontier, and Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek, the original cast adventures, as we talked about in the beginning they're basically more reference materials more for a, a yep. public library or a home library but there's great essays in there and uh you know we didn't even get to talk about wrath of Khan, which drives me crazy but you know I what know. we ran out of time and, and we no, could... no, don't forget one last mention sure google planet jesus trilogy to be aware of my new yes. upcoming franchise yeah and, and we'll definitely i i hope we talk before that but uh if that's when we talk again we'll mention that too it's always a pleasure Christian, yeah. anytime doug thank you so much hey, Will, I, great meeting you over the phone you too nice to talk to you doug yeah absolutely yeah it's always great to talk to doug and uh you know i i had so much more that i could talk to him about like you don't even i get pages and pages and the idea that we didn't even talk about a single movie really other than just in passing that's true you know i i have like like, Next I, time. Yeah, exactly. All right, so thanks so much, Doug. Uh, we'll talk to My you again pleasure. soon on the Blackcast. I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, I might, have to, I might have to do a whole episode on Wrath of Khan, you know, where we'll talk to Doug and then we'll talk to other people about it too. Yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, for right now, we just have to move on. And we have to move on to the end of the Blackcast. But uh, this is your last reminder that Blackcast number 200 will be live with streaming video on our YouTube page, so make sure you find the Blackcast YouTube page. That's next Sunday, November 13th, from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern, 3 to 5 Pacific, and so we will see you then live on the Blackcast. <laughs>